You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you're joining us. My name is Scott Worden, and I am the director of the Afghanistan and Central Asia program for the U.S. Institute of Peace. It's my pleasure to kick off this very timely and important discussion on the economic and humanitarian crisis that is facing Afghanistan. We want to discuss this morning not just the dimensions of the crisis, but also ways that we can mitigate the impact of a rapidly unfolding catastrophe. I'd like to thank everybody for joining us, as well as our esteemed panelists for taking time out of your busy schedules to discuss this important issue. We invite all of you to take part in today's discussion by asking a question using the chat box function, which is located just below the video player on the USIP event page. And we ask that you please include your name and specify where you are joining us from in your questions. You can also engage with us and with each other on Twitter with today's hashtag, hashtag AfghanistanUSIP, all one word. USIP was founded 35 years ago by the Congress to prevent, mitigate, and resolve violent conflict. We've had an office in Afghanistan in since 2008, focusing on reducing drivers of conflict. But now the biggest driver of conflict is the humanitarian crisis that is precipitated by a failed economy. In the three and a half months since the Taliban took over the country, foreign assistance has been suspended, the banking system is ground to a halt, and hunger is a paramount concern for the majority of Afghans. We'll hear from our expert panel speakers today who are on the ground in Kabul, as well as following policy developments in Washington about what are the dimensions of the crisis and ways to address it. But I want to underscore at the outset, the need for action is not just to alleviate human suffering, which should be enough, but it's also to protect national security. A failed state due to economic collapse will create a refugee crisis that destabilizes the region and enables greater safe havens for terrorist groups like ISIS and Al Qaeda. This was the original reason that U.S. intervened in Afghanistan and still a present threat. So addressing the humanitarian crisis is also addressing core U.S. national security concerns. To moderate this discussion, let me introduce Kate Bateman. Kate is the newest member of the Afghanistan team here at USIP. She joins us as a senior expert after uh, serving for several years, leading lessons learned reports at CIGAR and working on policy and intelligence positions on South Asia at the State Department. Kate, over to you. Thank you, Scott, for the introduction. Uh, my name is Kate Bateman. I'm a senior expert at USIP. I'm thrilled to be moderating today's important panel discussion. Uh, we have an excellent lineup of expert practitioners joining us from Afghanistan and the US, as Scott said. And I will ask a series of questions to our panelists before turning to the audience for your questions. Uh, as a reminder, you can take part in today's discussion by asking a question using the chat box function located just below the video player on the USIP event page. But first, it is my great pleasure to introduce our panelists, Vicky Aiken, Abdallah Al-Dawdari, Khalid Payenda, and Bill Bird. First, Vicky Aiken has served as the country director for the International Rescue Committee in Afghanistan since 2017. Before joining IRC, Vicky served as country director for the humanitarian organization Goal in Syria, Sudan, South Sudan, and Sierra Leone. 
Abdullah al-Dardari has been the resident representative of UNDP Afghanistan since May 2019. Prior to that, he was the senior advisor on reconstruction at the World Bank, Middle East and North Africa vice presidency. In his home country of Syria, he served as deputy prime minister for economic affairs and chair of the state planning commission during the early 2000s. Khaled Payenda served as the acting minister of finance of the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan, the former government, from January to August 2021, as well as secretary of the High Economic Council. He joined the Ministry of Finance as senior advisor to the minister in 2010 and has prior experience with the World Bank. And last but not least is USIP's own Dr. William Byrd, who has been a senior expert on Afghanistan since 2012. During 2002 to 2006, he was stationed in Kabul, where he served as the World Bank country manager for Afghanistan and then as economic advisor. And to those listening in, you can find our speakers' uh, more complete bios on the event website. Um, so I'd like to turn first to Vicky. Uh, Vicky, as the Afghanistan country director for IRC, you are on the front lines of the response to this humanitarian and economic crisis. But because of the Taliban takeover and a much lower presence of international news outlets, information about the situation on the ground is, um, is very limited, um, perhaps much more so than even in, in recent years as insecurity worsened. So can you describe for us um, what Afghans are living through right now? Um, how are people even obtaining food and medicine, um, staying warm as cold temperatures set in uh, with little access to cash and, and the entire economy near collapse? Vicky, yeah, <laughs> sure. Thank you, Kate. I'd like to talk about six elements that are leading to an unprecedented humanitarian catastrophe within Afghanistan. Uh, the first is the drought. We're experiencing a severe drought, and every single province in Afghanistan is classified as being either in food crisis or at emergency levels of food insecurity. 23 million people are in need of food assistance, and 1 million children are facing secure acute malnutrition. With below average precipitation expected for this winter, this is likely to get even worse come spring. The second is COVID. Although the official numbers are low, our community health workers throughout the country are still reporting large numbers of symptomatic people. But with clinics closed, with the labs not working, it's incredibly difficult to get the official numbers of that. And in addition to that, COVID had a devastating impact on the economy over these last few years. The third is the conflict. Now, in the last several months, conflict has um, greatly decreased, which is one of the few positives. But in the first half of, the, of, the, of this year, over 660,000 people were displaced from their homes. Um, critical infrastructure was, healthcare infrastructure was destroyed when the, the conflict heated up this past summer, and now there's no money for repairs. I went into one hospital in Logar, 
where all of the incubators were completely destroyed in a bombing. And so all of the premature babies are just laying under blankets. The likelihood of their survival is, is very low. Um, the fourth element is the sharp economic decline. With 9.5 billion in assets frozen, with inflation and devaluation of the currency, the average Afghan is struggling just to survive on a day-to-day -day basis. In recent WFP studies, they noted that the average family, the average laborer is getting maybe one day of work a week. And in normal times, they need that just to feed them for themselves for that day. So most families don't have even the cash to survive. And the, the next one was the fifth element is the freezing of the development assets. This has led to a near collapse of the healthcare system, which was almost fun, fully funded by these um, by the, these funds. Now, while they are working on solutions, again, as I mentioned, we're facing unprecedented levels of need. And even in the best of times, the healthcare system would be overwhelmed with, by that. So we immediate, immediately need a solution, not only for basic healthcare, but for the hospitals as well. Struggle, schools are also struggling to reopen because there's no money to pay teachers. Again, there's People are looking at solutions, but we've already lost a year of education to COVID. We can't afford to lose um, a further year. And then the, the sixth element is winter. Winters in Afghanistan are quite harsh. I mean, the only positive of the, the drought is that people that normally live in areas that are inaccessible due to snow, at least we have a little bit more time to reach them. With with people's immune systems compromised because they don't have enough food and all of the other elements, the cold will be devastating. Uh, I've never seen so many malnourished children in this country and I've been here for four and a half years. The clinics are full of mothers and severely malnourished uh, children under five. And so it's important that we're able to get them things immediately like blankets and fuel and winter clothes. Uh, we have to do the, this now, or some people will be out of reach. Thank you. Um, thank you for um, so well summarizing all the factors that are that are contributing to this um, unfolding disaster. Um, can you speak a little more to um, the experience of the humanitarian organizations on the ground? Um, how many are there you know actively working what are the main challenges that they're facing in getting aid to those who need it most and do you see do you see any positive opportunities developing yeah there are both challenges and positive things the challenges mainly come from the liquidity crisis and our inability to get cash into the country to buy the goods that we need to pay our staff there are many alternative ways to do that, but not all donors uh, will allow, are, are worried about some of the alternative methods for getting cash into the country. But right now we could only get $25,000 a month out of our bank accounts here, whereas we need about a million dollars a week to deliver the aid that we need to deliver. So, you know, 
The UN is working on alternative systems. Many people are working on alternative systems, but we need those alternative systems now, or we can't we can't use the the um, money that that donors are are providing to us. Um, and then there's, of course, there's challenges in getting people and goods into the country. You know, we need, we definitely need a functioning airport uh, to to help that along. But I would say there's also been a lot of positive developments. As I mentioned, the conflict is lessening, and we places that we could only fly to before we can now get to by road, um, so we can access a lot more people um, in rural areas where we haven't had access, some areas where we haven't had access to in years, um, it's now opened up um, for for some, but not all. The, the, the de facto government has been very um, uh, cooperative and, and welcoming for assistance. Um, they've eliminated a lot of the bureaucratic impediments that have been in place. Uh, they have welcomed some. Um, it hasn't been the experience of all agencies, but but we've been allowed to to fully operate and to scale up, and with all of our female staff who've been allowed to come back to work. So that has been something we were very worried about and have been glad to see that we're able to do that. In terms of the numbers, I know some agencies are struggling and may have to shut down if they can't figure out a way to get cash in and um, to access their, their accounts. Um, but we're all trying to, we're trying to fill a gap that humanitarians aren't meant to, meant to fill. <laughs> we need the development funds to come back online as well. Right. Um, thank you very much for that. That's, um, that's very helpful. I'd like to turn to Abdullah al-Dardari now. As UNDP's resident representative in Afghanistan, you're also deeply engaged in trying to mitigate the crisis. So what, what's your assessment of the need and what has UNDP been able to do so far to address it? Uh, the phrase of the century, you are muted. Uh, let's, let's first agree that the no humanitarian crisis can be solved with the humanitarian aid only. A humanitarian crisis of such magnitude requires economic policy, requires politics, requires national assistance and institutions. So, uh, and you know that the current political and sanctions situation does not allow to do all of that. So we need to maneuver to find uh, the best solution possible within these limitations. Now, uh, financially, the country, just let's think about that. Last year's budget was about $12 billion. Uh, with about $7 billion in grants. Now, who is going to give Afghanistan $7 billion in grants this year or next year? So that's a very big question hovering over the country. It's a dual shock that I have never seen in modern economic history. I have never seen a country that has a, a demand shock, so the, the, the immediate uh, fiscal cliff of the grants and at the same time the freezing of the assets and also a supply shock with trade interruptions 
and so on. So it's a dual shock that is unique. For example, it took Syria five or six years of conflict to reach to the same level of GDP deterioration Afghanistan has already reached, and we are not yet uh, at the end of the year. So uh, this is a massive uh, situation. And if it continues, we are talking about a 97% poverty by June 2022. That's a universal poverty level that we've never seen before in any other conflict. So, and you know the relationship between development and humanitarian. If we do more development, we can reduce the humanitarian load down the road. So it has to be a very well-coordinated operation. So now in the UN, we have the humanitarian fund and the humanitarian response uh, program, uh, which is a large appeal. And we are talking about more than $4.5 billion for the humanitarian work next year. But we also need more than $3 billion, at least, to maintain some resemblance of a functioning economy, to reduce this dramatic drop towards absolute poverty, and to create livelihoods. And from day one, the UN has been saying, lives and livelihoods. You cannot save one without the other. And you cannot save livelihoods without some sort of national systems. We can introduce, for example, solar uh, power, and we will do a lot of solar panels, but who will determine the tariffs of those solar panels and of this power? That's just a simple example of the complexity of the situation. So the country needs uh, humanitarian, and I'm calling upon the humanitarian to, to be generous about this, and they have been generous, but we also need what we call humanitarian plus, and uh, we call it a, a basic uh, human needs, and it is allowed in the current license uh, on sanctions. So we are, UNDP has set up a large program called Abadi, which connotes resilience and recovery in uh, Pashtun and Dari. We have set up a special trust fund for Afghanistan, bringing together 13 UN agencies to work as one in the area of livelihoods, and we started in Herat, in Mazar, in Jalalabad, in Kandahar, supporting women-owned enterprises. We are targeting 65,000 women-owned enterprises and a lot of public work at the local level to rehabilitate infrastructures, cash for work. Get, I, I, I went to Herat and we have a cash for work project where we are cleaning a canal, simple project. And all the men who are digging and grudging this canal told me we were about to go to Iran and try to get to Europe had it not been for this temporary job. So we need to maintain and expand dramatically on these activities to keep some livelihoods while some sort of resemblance of normal governance returns to the country. Thank you very much. Thank you, Abdallah. Um, thank you. Can you can you follow up on that in terms of um, playing out, uh, walk us forward the next four to six months? You know, it's it's springtime. Um, Vicky alluded to this, but if changes in policy and if the politics don't line as well as you um, as you emphasize, then how bad will the situation get? And if changes, if policy changes can be made. Uh, which ones are the most important? Which ones are most needed to have uh, to have an immediate and necessary impact? Well, if, if we continue like this for the next six months with a 97% universal poverty, it's unimaginable, to be honest. I, I cannot imagine what would that mean. People will leave their lands. That's the most important thing. 
most people that we have talked to in the cities have come from the rural communities and they have spent the last cash they had to travel to the city with the hope of finding a job in the city and they could not find a job in the city. So if we don't quickly move on job creation, there will be an implosion of some sort with catastrophic consequences regionally and globally. So it's it's actually a public good to invest in, in uh, uh, social uh, protection in poverty reduction and in the uh, providing of essential needs of cancer. Now, what type of policy uh, could be beneficial? We are not talking yet about full-fledged development cooperation, but short of that, a lot could be done. We can talk about early recovery. We can, we can talk about resilience and expand the policy space. I need to be allowed to work in local infrastructure in an expanded manner. I need to be allowed to work with systems instead of recreating the educational system because we cannot pay 220,000 teachers because they are state uh, uh, civil servants. We need to find a way to channel funds to keep these systems alive and so on and so forth. So space to work on systems, space to work on policies, space to work on, for example, how can I save the banking sector and the central bank is falling apart because it has no capacity. So all these are complex issues. We are studying carefully. We are putting out some research on these matters. And we are treading very carefully at the same time because it is a minefield. You are walking in a minefield while the time is your enemy at the moment. Time is our main enemy and we need resources and policy space immediately. Right. Thank you very much. Um, I think you know, beneath both Vicky and Abdullah's remarks are there's the, the elephant in the room is the technical side of, of the financial crisis. So now let's turn to um, the economists among us to enlighten us on, on the nuts and bolts of, of what needs to happen um, on the fiscal side. So turning to Khalid Payenda first, um, as the former acting finance minister of the previous government, the Islamic Republic of, of Afghanistan, you understand uh, perhaps better than anyone the, the dire fiscal situation. And what does it mean for the Afghan economy and the people, um, for the banking system and the Taliban government? What tools, what tools are available to the Taliban government to address the fiscal crisis? Thank you very much. Uh, uh, good morning and good evening to everybody, including the esteemed panelists. Um, it's, a, it's a dire situation, as Mr. Dardari said, that the magnitude of the catastrophe is unimaginable. You know, of wiping out 30 to 40 percent of GDP in less than six months uh, of of the year, as 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 he said, is unprecedented. I haven't seen it anywhere. So the the magnitude is 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 extremely uh, worrying. On the fiscal side, the government budget, coupled with the uh, donations that the donors provided made a big chunk of the economy you know, 30 40 percent of the economy was the was the government budget it implied a lot of people the biggest employer in the country was the government including close to a million people 
directly uh, uh, employed by the government. So that's if you assume a family size of five to six, you know, that's uh, uh, four or five million people that depended on on government salaries that immediately stopped uh, in being uh, paid for for a few months and and then coupling that with the uh, liquidity issues in the banking sector that that made it uh, extremely uh, bad um, uh, I think Vicky started it very well with with uh, uh, pointing out what were the pressures on the economy, you know, COVID and drought displacements caused by, by conflict were, were issues that were inherited by the de facto Taliban uh, government right now, but they emerged during the summer. So the economy wasn't, wasn't a distress uh, then as well. Uh, the government, uh, uh, had limited and has limited uh, tools at its disposal when you have a budget that is 75% covered by external donations and they're stopped you, uh, frankly there is not much you can do the best i think the taliban can do is to sustain salaries i have heard that they have reduced the amount of salaries with an intent to make sure that all people that were employed by the government are paid. I think it's a, it's the right step uh, under the circumstances, but it's not going to be a long-term uh, solution. Now, who provides the services? You know, the services that the government provided with the help of uh, the civil society, the donors, all of them, uh, including the health sector that uh, Becky mentioned, uh, need to be picked up immediately. Uh, it's not just the humanitarian, it's the humanitarian plus that needs to be uh, taken uh, forward. And, and that's where urgent need and intervention is, is, is required by the donors. Uh, probably uh, you do, do not have to uh, go through the government uh, to provide some of these services. You can do it as uh, UN and other international agencies uh, uh, through uh, direct mechanisms. There are uh, programs that could still be used uh, going forward. The health program, the basic package of health services could still be delivered. You know, you don't have to go through a Ministry of Public Health to coordinate a uh, UN agency, perhaps WHO or somebody else could do the coordination. And those same exact NGOs could deliver those, those services. But uh, there needs to be clarity on you know, what uh, mechanisms are in place to make sure that the liquidity flows into Afghanistan. I think that the choking point right now is that there isn't enough uh, uh, clarity on that. Uh, while there are two general licenses issued, you know, the, the details of working out how would you take physical cash into Afghanistan, how would the banks feel comfortable enough you know a city bank in new york setting needs to be comfortable enough that it's not going to be pursued in a couple of years through anti-money laundering lawsuits to be able to to finance to finance so uh, i think for uh, the service delivery and job creation and labor intensive work the donors and the un has to step up immediately uh, the Taliban should focus on revenue generation, the, whatever is possible. I know that the, 
and the trade has collapsed. You know, we don't have a, a trade of eight to nine billion dollar a year anymore. But whatever is is possible through customs to be able to pay for a functioning uh, government. Uh, so later, when the politics is is settled, it could uh, retake some of these uh, these um, uh, roles. The banking sector needs injection of money and 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 guidance. A central bank uh, or role of a central bank has to be played by by some some independent party that could make sure that there are settlements between different uh, commercial banks uh, but also movement of of money otherwise uh, i think the the current crisis um, regardless of the liquidity is a huge dent in, in the confidence of banking sector i think it will take perhaps decades for afghans to you know feel confident putting their money back in the banking sector because the meager savings that they had they had a huge problem and they still have a huge problem taking it out and and being able to 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 serve uh, i think the pro problem uh, in the short term needs to to be addressing to to provide humanitarian plus uh, assistance to to afghans all over the the country and that should be done through the un and other agencies and and in the, in the long run as dr dardari said you have to have a functioning economy otherwise uh, you cannot have have, have things uh, move forward for the donors i believe it's important uh, not to forget the aid effectiveness principles i think uh, creating new mechanisms where old ones and the ones that have worked and the ones that were showcased globally you know as success stories are coming out of afghanistan should not be replaced and they should be used you know i think community development and, and the basic package of health services that was provided in an excellent collaboration a manner between the civil society the, the government the then government and then and the donors they could still be used they should still be used uh, rather than creating new ones you know afghanistan reconstruction trust fund the R needs to move from reconstruction into relief fund, you know, but still, you know, how it could be linked with the UN, uh, uh, so it could provide services as as some of the some of the answers uh, uh, that and that should be done. But I uh, close by saying that urgency is is extremely important. We we do not have uh, four to five or even three months uh, to address the problem. Gets worse exponentially every day that we do not uh, address this. Right. Thank you very much, Khalid. Um, you've provided the perfect segue to Bill um, to turn to Bill about the liquidity crisis. But um, but I'd like to to pause for a moment, go back to your comment about uh, that you'd heard the Taliban has reduced salaries in order to um, essentially make make what limited cash there is go further by by spreading it widely. Um, you've also implied that perhaps the donors reluctance to provide um, to provide and deliver humanitarian and development assistance is a bigger constraint than um, is maybe one of the biggest constraints on um, on getting more aid 
and, and money or cash into the country. And I want to ask uh, how much confidence do you think the donors can have that if more liquidity is um, provided and, and cash is provided to the central bank, to the Afghan central bank, how much confidence do you think donors can have that the Taliban will not uh, divert money, that it will get to the right people, that it will actually reach civil servants, um, health, especially healthcare workers and teachers? Thank you. Just, just a clarification. I think donors are not reluctant. They are very, very concerned about this situation. It's the politics that's that's creating the reluctance. I think the White House's position not to engage in Afghanistan is is disabling everybody. Uh, so that politics needs to be, uh, you know, that clear guidance to U.S. Treasury and others how to engage on, on this would help the donors as well. On um, isolating the, uh, the the finances that go to through the country from Taliban using it, 100% isolation is, is impossible, you know. It was never isolated, you know. The uh, Taliban tax development 10 to 20% over the last uh, 20 years. Uh, but uh, there are mechanisms. Uh, the mechanisms, you know, some of the things that the U.S., the U.N. has been exploring and I've, I've been part of the discussions is you, you uh, set up a hub where uh, you, you send... Uh, financing and uh, physical cash uh, to to Afghanistan, or offset with with, for example, some big uh, companies who need cash abroad, and then you need Afghanis in, in, in Afghanistan. So it's playing a role of the central bank, but but by a third party that is independent that does not go through the the central bank. There are uh, mechanisms, you know, if, if the UN, for example, needs. $200 million and the telecom companies need it outside, you know, that could be an offset mechanism set up in Dubai or somewhere else where the UN hands the money and US dollars to the telecom companies and the equivalent of it could be taken from the banks and these uh, companies in, in Afghanistan. So there are mechanisms. There are also mechanisms on, on health sector workers. These workers are not government employees. These are uh, employees of NGOs that provide services on behalf of the government and, and, and donors. So the contracting, what the Ministry of Public Health, for example, did in this case was was to coordinate, you know, to lead contracting issues that could still, that whole function could be moved to a UN agency. And, and these health workers could be, uh, could be paid. On some other areas, for example, female teachers uh, and others, new solutions have to, have to be found. You know, they could be uh, a mechanism where you make sure that, you know, the, the money you send is, is spent in those areas. You get those reports, you, you use something that the World Bank, for example, used as a, uh, a third party monitoring monitoring agent to make sure that the salary that was sent was actually spent to to these uh, areas for for the teachers uh, um, salaries so there are solutions there are solutions uh, but it needs uh, political guidance for it to move to move ahead that that's my understanding Okay, thank you very much. Um, let's turn to, to Bill Byrd now. Um, 
Bill, as a development economist and, and former World Bank country manager, uh, you also understand the structural problems at play here. So to have some hope of saving Afghan lives and, and going as well to the, the national security interests for the U.S. and the, and the region and the world um, in preventing a complete collapse of the state, you know, what immediate steps can the international community, um, particularly the U.S., take? Thank you, Kate. One of the luxuries I have as being the final panelist, almost everything has already been said, and it has been very said quite well by the other panelists. So uh, just a, a quick note on the national security side. I think that is actually a downside risk. And I think typically in these kind of conflict-affected countries, actually a success factor is if the country is not on the front line of the war on terror. So I would be cautious about emphasizing too much the national security interest because that may uh, trigger various other kinds of in interventions which may not at all be helpful and, and actually may not even stabilize the country. So I would be really cautious on that. There is maybe some interest, uh, some national security interest, but that doesn't mean automatically, uh, for example, to target people within Afghanistan with drone strikes or, or other kinds of kinetic measures that might be currently being considered. Look, I'll, I'll just make a few points, to, and mostly they're emphasizing points. In terms of the immediate priorities, It is uh, one is still to make absolutely sure that humanitarian aid and aid for basic needs, which is explicitly allowed by the general licenses, actually can be easily transferred into Afghanistan and is not hindered by, uh, by the sanctions and in particular by the massive risk avoidance by foreign banks who for for whom it is uh, this is not a source of major income and they would uh, they would uh, uh, other things equal would simply just not make the transfer because of the risk of subsequent running afoul of the sanctions or AML CFT regime there needs to be a very clear message uh, beyond the general licenses which I've heard indirectly that the foreign banks don't consider that those provide them sufficient comfort you need comfort letters and they should not be case-specific because then it will be an endless dragged-out uh, process of getting approval for each. So there need to be general comfort letters, if you want to call them that. And my argument would be that it would be very great good if the U.S. government made at least the template, uh, if not actually making the individual letters public, at least make the template public and, and inform that this is the kind of uh, communication they're giving to foreign banks. Then it can be sorted out that why are, if the banks consider that insufficient, then they can respond to that publicly, uh, but otherwise they would not have an excuse to refuse to make transfers. The second and uh, uh, actually probably bigger problem is the liquidity in Afghanistan, which has already been raised. I won't go into that in any detail. There, there are many good ideas out there. I think there just needs to be a top level push to try the various schemes. It may be that more than one scheme will be needed. Uh, I have not heard of any single scheme that would actually address the, the uh, problem. And we should also remember that uh, the Afghan economy is going through a violent uh, adjustment. And so nothing that can be done in terms of liquidity is going to change that fact of a double-digit decline in GDP. What is important, at least especially in the short run, is to ensure there's enough liquidity for basic needs and humanitarian assistance to be delivered and for people to survive. So it's not a, uh, 
fix for the economy as a whole. Uh, I won't go into more on that, but there are specific uh, proposals, many of which seem promising, but probably none of which by itself will solve the problem. Uh, it's already been alluded that keeping the bank, Afghan banking system afloat is important. It's not a very large banking system, but it is important. And I don't think, I think the other alternatives to using banks are inferior, uh, including, by the way, from the uh, sanctions and AML CFT perspective. So, so there's an interest on all sides to keep the banks, at least the uh, credible, better managed banks of, of afloat as, as uh, I'm sure many already know several of the banks have been actually invested in and supported in by uh, by the international financial assistance and donors. So, there, so there's a clear record and uh, of uh, probity in, in at least a few banks in terms of the uh, anti-money laundering and countering uh, uh, funding of terrorism. Uh, let's make sure that at least the trade financing works. Okay, this this gets into the private sector. We don't want UN agencies to import all the humanitarian goods. I'm, I'm, they do a great job, especially in response to a temporary disaster. But this is likely to be a prolonged need for imports of food that are not, uh, you know, funded by the Afghan economy itself. Let, let's use the private sector more, and I think that will be efficient. They, they actually have a track record in that. So let's make sure that the sanctions uh, and money laundering controls at least don't prevent trade financing from going smoothly. It gets to more than to the issue of the private sector, which uh, Abdallah has rightly emphasized that you don't want the private sector to just collapse. So that will make the uh, humanitarian problem even worse. Uh, the point on the access to humanitarian, I think Vicky gave some good news, uh, at least in principle, at least for some agencies that access is there. So I won't speak on that further. And, and I would particularly welcome that the baseline uh, thing, which would need to be checked for other agencies, but if the Taliban are allowing Afghan women to work on delivering assistance to Afghan women and girls, that is sort of a minimum uh, requirement, and, and it's glad that, it's, that they appear to be meeting it. But let's look a little bit farther afield. I, I, the immediate problems are immense, but it, it is also clear that this economic crisis and humanitarian catastrophe is not like a one-time natural disaster. It will be prolonged over time, measured in years, not, not months. Uh, and I think it is not too early, therefore, to start thinking ahead about scaling up things, even, even while dealing with the emergency needs. And uh, the, clearly, over time, I, I, I don't want to give an amount, but it, it will certainly be in the billions of dollars per year. Uh, my, my feeling given donor attitudes and everything. It won't be many billions of dollars a year, but it surely will be at least one to two billion. And how do you deliver that? Uh, we, you know, there's uh, uh, well-studied syndromes associated with prolonged humanitarian aid. It's not even clear that at some point it doesn't actually inadvertently promote conflict rather than, than uh, assuage conflicts. And there are also issues of cost and efficiency and dependency and uh, uh, inadvertent competition, say, between the humanitarian aid and the private sector. So these things, it's not really too early to start thinking about these things and to, to think about basically, which Khaled already mentioned, the, the aid effectiveness issues. It's not like by shifting from development aid when during the last 20 years we were 
many of us were concerned about aid effectiveness and how to deliver it and, and cost, et cetera. It, it's not that those issues disappear when you shift to humanitarian aid. It, it may be in the short run as an emergency basis, but if humanitarian aid continues for two to three years, then those issues will come up. And uh, uh, I do think uh, we urgently, you know, that, that it's good to start thinking about those things. And the last point, two, two quick final points. One is, uh, uh, I think in line with this kind of longer term approach, it's really important to get the World Bank and the IFIs involved. Uh, they have experience, they have demonstrated uh, ability to distribute large amounts of aid. And I think it's, uh, it's unfortunate that, that they are, are, at the moment at least, being the laggards rather than at the forefront of some of these issues. And related to that, uh, you know, we can't leave out the Taliban. They, they really have to step up on the economic management. Uh, uh, I know they, they, I assume they think that they were given a very bad uh, deck of cards from the previous government, and that's certainly true, but they're responsible now uh, at a very minimum staffing the Ministry of Finance and Central Bank with competent te technocrats, which there's no shortage of, and some of them are still in the country. That would be a kind of signal, and then getting the World Bank and perhaps the IMF involved, not financially, but in terms of the economic management side. I, th I think this will be important, and I realize these are not necessarily the, the front burner issues right now until the winter, but I do think it's not too early to start thinking about uh, these kinds of issues as well. And uh, I do think uh, the Taliban do need to step up on economic management, rebuilding confidence, Maybe they have a basis if, if conflict is less and security is better, but they, but they really need to do more. So that's all for me. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Bill. Um, I'm going to ask a turn to you, Bill, first to answer a question that then I think anyone um, on the, the panel would uh, be very well positioned to answer. But um, it sounds like you've all you've all emphasized the short window, the small window that we have to act. You've emphasized there are many options on the table. There, um, you know, more proactive messaging from Treasury, uh, reassurance to foreign banks, and so on on the um, on the general licenses that were already issued for humanitarian aid and food and aid for basic needs. There, are, the UN has proven that it's possible to pay salaries of of health and education workers without going through the government. Um, you know, you've laid out a variety of, of options here. Um, Bill, what do you think, what is the main constraint in, in why have, has the United States, other countries, international financial institutions not already taken these steps when, I mean, the crisis, is, it's not imminent. It, you know, it's, it is upon us. A winter is upon Afghanistan. Um, why are these steps not already being taken? Um, is it a matter of legal and technical um, know-how, or is it mainly a political, a lack of political will, um, or is it logistics or, or all of the above? Um, could you please speak to that? And then I'd be happy to like to love to hear from other panelists. Well, that, that's a, a tough question. I mean, I think speaking for myself and all of us, probably it was a profound shock in August 15th. And some people have taken longer to, to deal with it personally than others. I guess paradoxically, I was somewhat helped because I had actually gone through directly or, or more indirectly uh, the 1978 coup, the 1980 Soviet invasion, 
the 1990s Civil War, and then not least the surprisingly quick and easy victory over the Taliban in 2001. So I really feel sorry for the younger generation who's only been engaged since 2001. They haven't seen that this kind of problem has happened before in Afghanistan, and it may be it may be even worse quantitatively because the, the economy has been built up over time on an aid dependent basis and, and therefore has much more farther to fall than it did in the 1980s and 90s. But this is not the first time that either international community has let down Afghanistan or that Afghanistan has gone into a kind of crisis. So with that preliminary, I, I think one thing I hope we avoid is that this becomes a failure of imagination. I think that's really uh, something we should avoid. There are creative and good ideas out there, and let's just push them forward. I think a, a unified signal from the U.S. government that, look, this is an emergency, people are going to be dying, let's do everything we can, would be helpful. Uh, in a way, I would draw the analogy to the airport evacuation. How, However messy and imperfect it was, it was a sizable effort, and it was done quickly, and, uh, you know, one could say with well, not without many disruptions and problems, but I'm, I'm just pointing it out as an example of what can get done quickly if there's a real focus and a will. And that same kind of uh, priority and effort needs to be put right now, I would argue, on the financial engineering. I mean, there are also options, for example, to print some more currency, Afghani currency. That might be a better option because when you're in a liquidity trap, sorry, a liquidity trap, the... Uh, the risk is that you send, let's say you send back $9 billion of Afghan reserves. Most of it will go out to Iran or Pakistan within months, perhaps. You know, you, 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 uh, you, uh, you provide the banking system with more resources. People will take out their deposits as soon as they can, and the banks will, will, uh, will collapse. So I think there, you know, there may be a, a case, for example, I'm just giving this as a specific point on the liquidity issue of... Uh, of modestly printing more Afghanis, making sure that the Afghanis in private companies' vaults uh, circulate, which would be through the swap arrangement that uh, Khaled made. So I, I sort of am pleading both, let's not let our imagination fail us, and then let's really push it. Okay. Thank you. Um, I'd like to move very soon to audience questions, but just before we do so, um, does anyone else have a response to that last question about why, where's the urgency to take more of these creative approaches? Would any of the other panelists like to comment? If I may, uh, Kate, we, we are exploring options uh, in order to save the banking sector, for example. Uh, we have estimated in UNDP that a loss of the banking se sector, a complete collapse of the banking sector, would cost an additional 30% loss to GDP, in addition to the loss we have seen so far. That's wiping out $350 billion of, sorry, $350 billion Afghanis of people's savings. That's not a small amount of money. That could have been a reconstruction starting point at one day. So. Uh, so, we, but we need to put together a comprehensive system. You are talking about deposit guarantees, ex, a credit guarantee, trade finance facilities. We are designing all of those as we speak. And we issued a, a, a policy brief recently about Afghanistan Bank. So let me take this opportunity to say another warning signal that if we don't really move and give the space 
to allow such elaborate structures to move. And this is a medium term. We are also thinking about the immediate, how do you bring money immediately to the country? And there are that we are moving forward with that. We moved $15 million to the health sector, paid salaries for 26,000 health workers. It worked, but it was like pulling teeth through the banking sector, through money service providers. And I don't think we can do large amounts. The $15 million was very difficult. So imagine when we talk about billions of dollars that the country needs in the next 24 months. Right, Vicky. Yes, thanks, Kate. WFP have said that if something's not done, up to 9 million people could fall into the famine category. And if that happens, that would be because of an entirely preventable, entirely man-made crisis. So my fellow panelists have offered a number of solutions, and I know there are a number more. We, we need to move quickly on some of these solutions. Thanks. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to, um, I'm going to share uh, the first question uh, from the audience now. And I'd like to just remind everyone um, tuning in that you can uh, please use the chat function located on the USIP event page to submit your questions. Um, first question is from Alice Thomas. She asks, um, can the panelists please discuss how the sanctions are affecting girls and women specifically, including with respect to education? Would anyone like Vicky go? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to take that. They, they, they're really hurting women and girls. Um, let's take, for example, the issue of female humanitarian workers. We, um, in order to reach women in, in Afghanistan, you need to have female staff. But note that only about 30% of women in Afghanistan are literate. Note that we lost a lot of the educated women in the evacuations. <clears throat> but humanitarian aid doesn't extend to secondary education. It doesn't extend to tertiary education. And we need the we need new generations of girls to be trained as healthcare workers, as teachers. Um, we need to have economic opportunities for them. And then let's think about the local women CSOs. For international organizations with international bank accounts, it has been, and the UN, it has been a struggle for us to get money in to operate. These local CSOs are, really they're almost working on a volunteer basis because there's no way for them to to operate at the scale that they need to operate and we need to continue to support civil society there are, there are local cso's that are up and running and if they're not allowed to operate if they you know if they can't access money in their bank accounts if they can't pay their staff then that civil society is going to disappear If I may, Kate, uh, in the report that we just published two days ago, we spoke about what does all this mean for women? And what does the fact that women are not fully active in the economy, what does it mean for Afghanistan? It means a loss, an immediate loss, additional loss to GDP between $600 million and $1 billion. 
it means a loss of $500 million in household consumption. And most seriously, if women and girls stay out of education, the medium to long-term consequences to productivity and opportunities for recovery will be harmed seriously. So the question of women and girls, in addition to it as a human right question, we need to fight for it as such, it is also an economic imperative. So, and we, are, we want to make that call uh, to all parties to, make, to keep this issue center stage uh, for in the next few days and weeks in Afghanistan. Right. Oh, thank you. Thank you both. Um, I'm going to move on to a question from Noor Sadiq. Um, asks, reports say that of 4 billion Afghanis available in country, only about half of a billion are in circulation. Uh, the private sector is keeping money in safes and under the mattresses. Um, how can trust be built? For, is that um, in your, from your understanding, is that an accurate um, picture of the situation that there are that people are are hoarding cash out of fear of spending it or a fear of of even worse conditions setting in perhaps maybe Bill or, or Khaled or anyone would, if you would like to comment Khaled. I could take a crack excellent question uh, um, I think people are hoarding cash but it's mostly in foreign currencies than than afghanis uh there was before the crisis the uh, the previous government uh, was going to print new money because we had less afghani in, in circulation and that the bank notes were getting old you know the lower uh, um, um, you know 10 afghanis 50 20 they were all you know we were running out of uh, out of them so there was a need for more money in, in, in circulation, but I, I believe it's mostly and uh, US dollars and other currencies that that people who have access to them hoarding them. Uh, uh, but overall, yes, uh, of, uh, with, with such uncertainty, uh, people would be hoarding cash. I think one big issue right now is that the economy is not moving you know you don't have a fiscal sector moving money you know the velocity of money are moving that's almost none you know they have to restart that but but also uh, slowly uh, easing the, the the sanctions or limits on how much money you can you can take out but then you definitely need uh, mechanisms or a swap mechanism that I mentioned earlier, through which uh, you know, uh, if money uh, people would want to take out money, they would should be able. Uh, otherwise, you it's very difficult to build that that confidence. But I'd reiterate again that uh, for for some people, this experience the past uh, three months will be so excruciating that they would never trust the banking sector again, uh, although none of the banks uh, fault. But, you know, the, the the money in circulation, you know, I think one thing that the Taliban did was commendable was to to make sure that in, in transactions Afghani is used, that makes makes it uh, the money in circulation uh, better. But then you, you need to have a working economy, otherwise it's, it's really difficult. Uh, uh, to regain or rebuild that trust.
If I just uh, add to that, I think uh, in addition to the hoarding, there's capital flight. And uh, so the dollar, uh, there may be some Afghanis being hoarded. That That's hard to know, but seems less likely, as Khalid said. But in addition to being hoarded, dollars are flowing out of the country to Pakistan in particular. And they're also being used to uh, to fund human flight. So resulting in both flight of the capital and of humans. Uh, so, so I think this is actually the essence of a, of a liquidity trap with a difference from the classical one of the U.S. depression that there is the option of taking money out of the country and also, frankly, people themselves going out of the country. Uh, this is why also I think there, may, there is a case uh, for modestly increasing the amount of uh, Afghanis printed. The, as far as I know, the larger Afghan private companies like telecoms, et cetera, they are now scared to put the, the cash they receive from their business, right? Telecom is still going on, they're getting paid. So they're keeping the cash in their vaults rather than putting it in the banks. And this is where there might be a modest benefit from uh, allowing them to put these Afghanis into the bank account uh, uh, for humanitarian uh, work. And then it can be immediately withdrawn for humanitarian assistance while the humanitarian agency then pays the the Afghan company's bank account in, in a foreign country, Dubai or elsewhere. That, this swap arrangement is uh, is actively being discussed. The point is it should it should be done quickly. And also I have suspected by itself, it won't be enough, but it, it is a promising initiative. Over. I have a question for Vicky now. Um, how much has IRC um, received clear guidance on compliance requirements um, regarding in terms of dealing with the new government? Has the Taliban government um, provided clear guidance um, on, for example, the use of Hawala networks, the, the informal um, money, um, um, the informal financial sector, and on um, paying taxes to the new government? Sure. Um, <laughs> that's a it's it's a difficult question. So in terms of the Hawala system, they haven't really provided they haven't. They're interested in us being able to deliver however we can deliver. So they're kind of leaving the humanitarian agencies alone when it comes to that. There have been different guidances listed um, that the government has sent out. To various um, sectors, but but so far we're okay on that. In terms of paying taxes under the 2005 NGO law, we I believe it's that law. We have to we're supposed to pay. They haven't put on any new taxes, so it's the same taxes from before. So it's basically withholding tax for for income. Um, and contracts and rent. And they had um, they had for for agencies, they had given um, some a break on when you could start paying it. Um, but it's not the government is much clearer than the donors. So for us, the struggle is, what is the guidance from the, the different donors? And we have donors from many different governments. So that's what's making it much more difficult. And um, 
it takes up a lot of discussion amongst humanitarian agencies on whether we can or whether we can't, you know, under OFAC licenses, um, we should be able to, but under the UN sanctions, maybe not, maybe, <laughs> who knows? So, yeah. So the guidance from the government is much clearer than the guidance from the donors. Thank you. Um, I'm going to shift briefly to um, to a, well a regional question from um, from USIP's Michael Phelan. Um, Michael asks, what what is the regional impact, human and fiscal, of this accelerating humanitarian emergency, and how has the region responded, if at all, either individually or in concert with others? Maybe maybe Abdullah. First, would you like to take that? Uh, our analysis shows that a 4% drop, this was the, the COVID-19 analysis, that a 4% 4 drop in GDP in Afghanistan causes a 1.5% drop in GDP in Pakistan and similar drop in, in Iran. The economies of the region are interconnected and therefore a, a further deterioration in the Afghanistan economy will have direct and indirect consequences on the neighboring countries. And we haven't even spoken yet about uh, migration. Uh, hundreds of thousands of people have moved into those countries already and the security threats and so on and so forth. So it is extremely important that we there should be a regional perspective of dealing with Afghanistan on trade, on uh, connectivity, on security, all these issues. We in UNDP and the UN system have started working on the studies on what does it mean? What does all this mean for the economies of the region? And then what are some of the mitigation measures that one could use? Trade is in fact the oil for Afghanistan. It is the pull factor that could take it out of its economic rules. So it is very important uh, to have a regional approach to whatever we are planning for the medium term for Afghanistan. Maybe I could just add that uh, actually the regional countries had a cohesive, in my view, a cohesive view and strategy about the need for a negotiated solution. And uh, almost, if not universally, I think universally they said there should not be an Islamic Emirate. So the regional countries were also take, uh, taken by surprise by what happened and, and uh, I think it's taking them some time to respond. Uh, you know, they vary, right, in their views toward the Taliban. Pakistan, arguably a foundational supporter of the Taliban, maybe somewhat now uh, in a beware of what you wish for situation. Iran, very concerned. Uh, Northern, uh, Northern uh, Central Asia and, and Russia worried about uh, terrorist issues particularly. So there's different views among the region and uh, Unfortunately, what seemed like a fairly cohesive uh, regional position before August 15th has, has fallen apart. And I don't think anything has yet replaced it, but, but they will be feel, feeling the consequences. Particularly, I would argue with a human flight, but also as Abdullah mentioned, even a purely economic effect. I'd like to use that opportunity to kind of shift back to the politics of, um, of how how the crisis, how the international community responds to the crisis and how the Taliban do. Um, 
um, the Taliban don't seem to be making a distinction between humanitarian and development assistance. Um, they argue that you know, the sanctions and asset freezes are, are sanctions effectively on all, the, whole, uh, the whole country, all Afghan people. Um, are they right about that? And is there a way to, um, how do you see international donors navigating the question of of actually delivering aid um, and addressing the liquidity crisis while, uh, while also not formally recognizing the Taliban government or trying to um, manage the politics of a kind of signal to the Afghan government that we're not, we're willing to, we're willing to accept your authority um, despite the military takeover. Bill? Yeah, I mean, I think we need to be practical here. Uh, the uh, official recognition, I believe the UN Credentials Committee has just put it off. Uh, that's a likely situation and was there in the 1990s as well when the Taliban were increasingly frustrated that the party controlling less than 10% of Afghanistan was the official representative. I would hope the UN would somehow be able to vacate the seat if, even if they're not going to seat the Taliban. But uh, 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 so there, there are a lot of issues here, but I think the practical way forward is to just not focus on the recognition issue or the reserves, which will be very naughty. And actually the freezing of reserves was not, it, it, it badly affected confidence and the banking system. It was not the prime mover it was the discontinuation of eight billion or so dollars of, of foreign aid that really was the economic shock. And then the freezing of reserves, which everybody seems to be focused on, including the Taliban, was definitely a problem and a secondary problem. But it's not as if the previous government was, was suddenly going to use eight, eight or nine billion dollars of, uh, of reserves. And it would be a terrible move for the Taliban to to try to make use of the reserves, even if they in that way, even if they were uh, released. Uh, these are reserves built up by the country over many years, and they should be used prudently. Uh, it relates also to my point about the central bank having decent staffing and leadership, and as with the Ministry of Finance. So uh, I think my, my suggestion is just that we move forward practically within the realm of the possible, and, it, and it's quite possible to do a good bit if there's a will without sort of touching these third rails of sanctions and recognition, et cetera. Vicky. Sure, I'll, I can tackle the, if they're right, if the entire country is affected and not being able to distinguish between humanitarian and development. Uh, you know, every year when we, when we decide what is going into the humanitarian response plan, there is a debate amongst seasoned experts about what is humanitarian and what is development. So I think we can forgive them for not understanding what the line between the two is. Uh, and if you look at this year's HRP, we've had to put in what we call the humanitarian plus activities because the entire country is affected by all of those six elements that I that I mentioned. Um, so, yeah, with, with what um, colleagues said, about ninety-seven percent of the the country being under the poverty line, with education not 
happening and it's it's not clear if education is covered under the sanctions um yeah i, th I think the entire country is affected yeah sorry quickly to jump in i think there's an ofac release and discussion that said that basic education is included for USAID programs, but not necessarily for other programs. It's a good example though, but I, I think they, there is a statement somewhere by OFAC that basic education like primary is considered one of the basic human needs, at least for the purpose of USAID programs, which then raises the issue of other donors and how they're treated. Sorry, just to jump in on that, I, th I think there's a very good case that basic education is part of basic human needs and, and apparently the US Treasury has agreed with that. Okay, um, okay, I'm going to uh, go to an audience question now um, from Arbab Nasibullah Kasi asks, uh, as the limitation of withdrawing money from banks in Afghanistan is currently up to $25,000 US dollars a month, um, what is, and, and that's, as Vicky explained, that's not sufficient to, um, to meet your, or many organizations, even salary needs. Um, what's the alternative way to share, uh, to, uh, what's, the what's the other way to get support, uh, in-kind support and financial support into the country? Maybe, maybe primarily for Vicky and Abdullah, but anyway. Sure, so as mentioned, there are a number of different methods that are being tested, um, including the exchanges that they talked about, Hawala system, um, microfinance banks, and a number of others that can't do things at scale. And I just wanted to clarify that that $25,000 a month is for organizations, it's not for individuals as well. So there are a number of options. Uh, but it's like you have to piecemeal everything and some are okay with some donors, some are okay with others. Uh, so we need a, we need a better solution. Abdullah. Just to give you an example, how complex this, this is, we are setting up a risk management unit, which will have to have a database of UN, US, EU, UK sanctions on sanctioned lists of names, enterprises, and so on, the entities, and so on. And then we have to do a check on every possible vendor and every possible recipient. So we are now targeting uh, to create a million jobs through cash for work programs in the next 18 months. It means I have to verify the million recipients and they, we have to vet them through these risks, uh, uh, through this risk unit. It's, it's only making things slower and more complex. And uh, therefore we have to be extra cautious. Uh, it will make things costly uh, and we have to make sure. So we are now doing due diligence for every possible financial channel we can bring money through. It's all fine. But people are dying. It's we are in this situation. So while we are trying to build up, not trying, we are building up all these systems and the human resources that need to be in Afghanistan, people are dying. So as I said, time is our enemy and we need policy space today if we can. 
Um, thank you both. Um, I'm going to, we're going to, I'm going to use the prerogative of the moderator to extend just until 11.20. And if we can um, uh, quickly um, address two last questions. Uh, one is from Tara Moyayed for Khaled Payenda. Uh, the Taliban are collecting large amounts of revenue. Um, as we know, they still they should still have access to significant amounts, over a billion dollars. Um, you probably know the exact amount that they were collecting um, annually to fund the insurgency. Can donors avoid? Um, can donors put more of the onus on the Taliban to govern and use those revenues for people's needs, like salaries and electricity? Yeah, thank you very much, Sarah. Uh, I think the only leverage that the donors have right now is is the aid. This should, uh, if Taliban are thinking of a sustainable a sustainability to be in, in power, they have to make sure that the population is is not too much in distress, you know, and causes a lot of uh, problems and headaches for them. And they could rule it without uh, any economics involved. You know, we've seen it in 1990s, but that's, I hope that, that they've learned uh, from that. So that that's 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 the leverage that uh, um, uh, the international community has. I think there has to be some some pressure on, on Taliban to for next year's, for example, budget that they're preparing right now. At least covering and the, the salaries of civil servants that work on the government's payroll, and uh, the services, including humanitarian and basic health and education services, could be picked up by UN and others, and 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 paid. Uh, but uh, if if uh, half a million to three quarter of a million. Uh, uh, civil servants and people employed by the public sector get some sort of salaries that in itself is is a uh, helps the the situation uh, helps with the, you you consider it as a cash transfer to the poor uh, uh, if they want legitimacy I think they have to prove that the they have, have um, treated a public purse as as public's money and and try to do uh, a good budgeting so i uh, would be looking at the next year's budget you know I, I think the best intention of a government is to look at their budgets on where they would be spending if they do care about people and the economic situation their part to do is to to make sure that the budget then is is prepared in such a way and it's transparent enough that we could we could see that i hope i've answered the question I think, Bill, would you like to add something? Just to add, uh, uh, I completely agree. And the Taliban, to the extent that they understand and remember their own history, and some of the figures in the cabinet were also governors or ministers in the 1990s. This was almost the biggest, one of the biggest sources of illegitimacy of the Taliban in the 1990s, that they were not able to pay uh, civil servant salaries. The uh, hyperinflation led to the largest 10,000 Afghani note being worth about 25 cents, they they really failed on the economic management side. And so if they're cognizant, and as, as Khaled said, that they want to stay in power, then paying civil servants is one of the signs of legitimacy that urban Afghans in particular pay attention to. Mm -hmm. that, Abdullah, did you... Yes, Kate. I say, there is something in the hands of the authorities to do is 
allowing women to work. You know, uh, women actually represent a large part of the informal economy in Afghanistan. And usually when a formal economy shrinks, like uh, the one in Afghanistan today, the informal economy picks up the slack. But because women are not active as they used to, we don't see the informal economy picking up pieces of the uh, national economy and moving ahead with it. So that's a decision that could be taken. It's not an external decision. This is a domestic policy issue that could be determined domestically. Thank you. Did, Vicky, did you have any? No. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to ask a, a final uh, final quick question along the lines of, of what we've just been discussing about the Taliban. What's within the pa Taliban's power to do, um, like come up with a, even a basic budget for donors to respond to? Um, um, a larger question is why? Um, I'm sorry. Here I'm looking. Why is why is bad governance in Afghanistan? a U.S. problem and not a Taliban problem? Is that a fair question? Um, I mean, why are we more concerned about perhaps about, um, I guess another way of asking is, is how do we employ whatever leverage we do have to press for uh, better governance on behalf of the Taliban or on the part of the Taliban? Khaled. Yeah, uh, I think let's not forget uh, no, to, to see why are we in this situation. I think it's part of the the deal, the, the so-called uh, peace deal that was made in, in Doha, you know, it's gotten us here. Yes, the government made its mistakes, but the US government's deal with Taliban, uh, ignoring completely the legitimate government, uh, brought us here, you know, and and uh, uh, there hadn't been absolutely no no discussions on on issues that we are tackling right now. You know what what would the transition look like? I think it's a U.S. problem. Unfortunately, it's going to be a U.S. problem for for a long period of time, regardless of whether people in power here want to think that Afghanistan is over. Evacuation was was the last uh, effort and it's it's gone you know I, I unfortunately it may come back to haunt haunt the us and the west uh leaving Afghanistan where it is uh, and and the whole region there i, I think it's it's a it is a us problem whether it admits it or or not and I, I that's why you know my point about guidance on urgency and and getting into uh issues in Afghanistan, you know, uh, making sure that humanitarian uh, aid follows and then some sort of engagement. I think it's, it's, it's important to continue that. I think it's important also to continue engaging with Taliban, whether you like them or not, because they are still uh, right now in, in power and, and uh, um, rather than having no uh, engagement with them and engagement is, is is good you know because if you banish them it's you lose all the leverage that you have so it's it's a it's a u.s problem unfortunately um and and requires us leadership 
uh, that requires engagement because most of international community is looking at what the U.S. wants to do. You know, I know that the IMF and the World Bank are paralyzed because they don't have guidances from the executive directors uh, of the U.S. Uh, Treasury. Uh, so I think uh, it's it's important for the U.S. to show that that leadership uh, and and resolve these issues. Thank you, Khalid. I think Bill, Bill, did you have a response? Yes, just to add. I mean, uh, I'm afraid in in this uh, failure there are many many cooks who produced it. So there's much to go around and anybody who says they are blameless and the others are all responsible, I think is wrong. But the, I'm a little puzzled by the question because it seems to imply that governance was so good under the previous re republic and now the Taliban are doing a bad job. There were innumerable uh, problems of corruption and governance, uh, well understood, uh, politicization, uh, the whole national unity government problem. So it's a bit odd for somebody to say, I think, or to imply, maybe the question didn't really mean this, but somehow governance was better under the previous government. I think that's, sure, there was some better protection of rights and everything, but in, in the quality of governance, it was not by a wonderful situation that then somehow uh, disappeared after August 15th. Right. Did Abdullah or Vicky, would you like to, these would be last comments here before we wrap up. Yeah. I'd like to bring in the question of governance from an economic perspective. We could see from the analysis that what compounded the impact of the dramatic loss of grants and the overall macroeconomic situation is a drastic drop in productivity, almost a 10% drop in productivity that started before the 15th of August. You know, usually it takes a generation to lose 15%, 10% productivity in an, in an economy. To lose it in a year or two uh, is, is an incredible shock to this. And that requires governance. You cannot, so that's why I was saying, if we want to really have a resolution of this economic situation and the humanitarian situation, you have to address those systems and how they function and how effective and efficient they are. And that is a very politically sensitive question at the moment. Thank you very much. Back to you. Thank you, Abdullah. Vicky, you get the last sure. word. <laughs> and I, I'm going to, as the humanitarian, I'm also going to bring in the issue of moral responsibility. Um, good governance, we can't just leave the, the Taliban to deal with all of the problems that have been left behind on their own. There are still 38 million people in Afghanistan, 23 million of them who are in desperate food insecurity. Um, I would say 37 million or more had absolutely nothing to do with the, the conflict, and we can't abandon them. Thank you. I think that's the um, the urgency, um, the urgent and kind of moral imperative that we want to to end on, close on. So thank you everyone for your generosity of time and expertise, and um, we look forward to continuing this discussion. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts.